You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome one and all to episode 118 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. It is brought to you by our sponsors on Patreon. I love you all very much. And also our sponsor, GameMat.eu, for pre-painted terrain and wonderful mats. So tonight, I am very, very excited to talk to you about an interview I had with a Games Workshop legend, Alan Merritt. If you do not know who Alan Merritt is, he has done practically everything there is to do at Games Workshop. He has been a mold person, you know, filling the molds and all that. He's been like a shop foreman. He's been part of the creative team. He dealt with all the sculptors. He helped with the introduction of the plastic injection molding. And he was uh, one of their first five employees the Games Workshop ever had. So this guy has definitely been around the block. And he's an absolute treasure uh, to talk to. He's got a lot of really funny anecdotes and interesting stories of the good old days of Games Workshop. Now, we spoke on Skype for three hours that night. And um, obviously, this is not a three-hour podcast. So what I've done today is I have somewhat um, consolidated some things in terms of what the topic was. So the first thing that we'll be discussing in his segment is we're discussing how he got into Games Workshop and how his career started with Games Workshop. Then it'll transition over to the mold-making process and how he learned how to do the molds and all of that. Then eventually it's the birth of Warhammer. How did Warhammer Fantasy Battles, which originally was just called Warhammer, how did Warhammer come about? And he's got the inside story of exactly how that happened. And finally, we discuss the model making process and the design process and exactly, you know, how does that happen? Does the creative team say we want X, Y, or Z? Or do the sculptors make some cool models and the creative team make rules for it? How does all that work? And um, I've just been captivated this entire time. It's super, super interesting. So now, having said that, we have far more information to cover. Uh, that's just those certain topics I picked out for tonight. We are probably going to be using Alan Merritt uh, interview segments for pr- at least the next episode, possibly a third episode. So uh, this is the full scoop, a scoop I've never seen anywhere else of the birth of Warhammer, the birth of Games Workshop, the development of it, all the way up through. Uh, he ultimately was the uh, intellectual property uh I guess, executive or supervisor or whatever. He managed the intellectual property for Games Workshop, like all their trademarks and all their, you know, all that. So he was there for the birth of Age of Sigmar. He, uh, man, what has he not done, honestly? So we'll, we'll get into that in future episodes, but tonight those are the subjects with him. And we also have a uh, Want That or Want That Not with the Space Wolf dice and the Death Watch dice. Have they turned a corner and they're making better things, or have they turned a corner further into hot garbage dice, which sometimes they do? We will discuss that. So, what have I been up to? Well, I teamed up with Old Beast Man. We teamed up our Stormcast this week at the at the store, and um, yes, we're still allowed to play at the local store, just with a bunch of restrictions. And we teamed up against Ogres and uh, Skaven, and... We, uh, I was all melee. He happened to all be ranged. He took a bunch of three ballistas and a bunch of judicators. I took retributors and liberators and all that. 
But the real key thing here is that um, I talked about a couple weeks ago. I played this person, our friend Connor, a couple weeks ago with his Deceiver, the giant rat Deceiver version for Skaven. And that dude is nuts. He is a murderizer is what he is. You'd expect, oh, you know, he's a rat. He's going to be a coward. No, he will, he will eat your lunch. He will reach down your throat, pull out the lunch that you just ate, and he will eat it to establish dominance. And uh, But the, the cool thing was, is the very highlight of... Actually, there was two highlights. Two highlights to that game. We all but wiped them off the table. They had uh, the big deceiver guy, and they had the bell, whatever that bell is for Skaven. That's all they had left on the field. And I took pretty heavy losses. Uh, Beastman barely got touched, because I was all up in their grill, and Beastman was uh, not, so... But the highlight of the show is when I deep struck my two Tempesters on Dracoths in their uh, back line, in their deployment zone on turn one. And the reason for this is Tempesters do not have a great damage output. They do have a three up save reroll in ones because of their shield. And that's pretty cool. But with any amount of focused fire, they are just dead. So I decided, well, these are scary looking models. So I'm going to throw them in their backfield in the opposite direction of the objectives so that he's going to have to go out of his way, turn around, and come after me away from the objectives. And sure enough, they took it hook, line, and sinker. So they sent their deceiver after these Tempesters, and they also uh, sent their butcher or whoever the leader is for ogres, and they sent both of them over there. And lo and behold, guess what? The Tempesters died in one single turn of melee. I mean, that's just the way it is, especially with the deceiver there. And uh, But the funny thing was, is that by the time that he split his hero and the Deceiver away from everybody else, and then he sent his ogres into my Retributors. Well, my Retributors did seven mortal wounds alone, just from their smash, you know, smash to, blast to ashes ability. And uh, it was it was divine, it really was, because he lost like six ogres or something in one turn. And then, guess what? He wasn't in range for Inspiring Presence, which was, you know, a benefit of me trying to deter, to trying to lure him away from the rest of the battle. So he was not there to help his people, and the rest of the ogres fled. And that was beautiful. Now, that ogre dude is also no joke, because when he did finally get back to my retributors, he killed like four of them in one turn before they could strike. So he's, he's pretty gross. But the good news is, is that the ogre leader, it took him like two turns to get over back to us because he went way out of his way to follow those Tempesters. And the Deceiver was way out of, you know, they weren't near anything once they killed the Tempesters. The, the Deceiver wasn't near any of our army. Well, he's got his Skitter Leap or whatever power, and guess what? He failed it, which is awesome. The Skitter Leap is basically a deep strike. You pull the Deceiver off the board, and he can deep strike anywhere not within six inches of an enemy. And he wanted to deep strike elsewhere. Well, he didn't get to because he failed it. So turn one, he Skitter Leaps over and kills the Tempesters. Turn two, he's still far off in the back corner and fails the Skitter Leap. And turn three, he finally does come over. But by that time, we had essentially killed pretty much everybody and um, everybody else of his forces because all the ballistas and all the judicators and all that stuff. So that was one highlight is when they completely fell for my bait. And that made me happy. The other time is that this ogre dude just killed four retributors and he's coming for my uh, Lord Celestine. Now, my Lord Celestine is just on foot. I didn't have a whole lot of points. We only had a thousand points each. 
So my Lord Celestine's like 100 points. That's why I took him. And um, he's not a combat monster. He's got that hammer. He's got that sword. And you're thinking, oh, he's cool. No, he really isn't cool. So what we did, and I was very pleased with this as well, is I had Beastman focus some of his Judicators into that ogre dude. And I threw my hammer cape at him because the cast, the uh, Celestine has those little hammers on his cape that come back. So I did some mortals that way. And the Judicators took him down a couple wounds. I think he had two hit points left. And I did not charge him because I knew that he would eat my lunch in close combat. I continued to hold the objective and I backed away, letting him charge me. Well, by that point, they were already in combat with other things and they would rather activate the other things rather than try to kill my Celestine. So, being that I take whatever the chamber is where you reroll ones to hit when you charge, whatever that's called, I never remember. But the, um... He has a command ability or an artifact or something that will allow him to be reckless. It's like Battle Fury. And he gets minus one save in that melee combat, but he gets plus two attacks with one of his weapons. So I took my sword, and I did plus two attacks to the sword. Then I used my command ability, which gives me another attack. So I was seven attacks with the sword, and then, of course, like two or three with the hammer. And believe it or not, my guy, I knew this was it. Like, there's no point not to be reckless because this ogre dude is going to beat the crap out of me if he gets to strike. And I was so pleased when he did not activate him first. So with his two remaining hit points left, I smashed him and uh, it felt pretty good. So I, I like the idea of my Celestine going, okay, wait till you see the, the whites of his eyes. Okay, wait, wait. Wait, okay, now I'll be reckless. And then he, he went all out on him, and uh, it was quite satisfying. So, uh, by the way, um, remember when I was talking about natural synergy versus intentional synergy? Um, once again, besides my one command ability from the Celestine, and I was buffing the Retributors with the extra attack, other than that, I had exactly no synergy in my entire list. I was all just pure melee. I had some Evocators. I had some uh, Prosecutors, had some Liberators, had Retributors, and my Castellan. That's all I had. Nobody was buffing anybody except my hero, which every hero buffs. But um, just going back to that, that idea of natural synergy versus intentional synergy. Now, I did know ahead of time that Josh, most of his army, or Beastman, most of his army for Stormcast is pretty ranged. He's got like the Vanguard Hunters, he's got uh, Judicators, he's got uh, the Bat... The ballistas, and all of that. So I knew that he probably was going to go shooty, because that's what that's his play style that he likes to play. Um, so we used natural synergy. I bubble-wrapped his ballistas and all of that, kept them out of harm's way, and I pushed forward and took... Man, he, he ate my Liberator's lunch with some of the um, Iron Gut ogres. They came in and just decimated that unit. Um... So that was that was something. But uh, anyway, I took heavy casualties so that he didn't have to, so that he could support me with his ranged fire. And that, my friend, is natural synergy. Thank you. This has been my TED Talk. Uh, what else have I been up to, man? I have been cranking out the Brutality uh, Skirmish War game supplement. It is the Bestiary and Lord Dreadmore's Gauntlet, which is arena mode for Brutality. I am now up to... I finally finished it. And I have 67 NPC profiles already made up. So, in other words, 
Do you want robots? Cool, there's five different robots. Robots that shoot, robots that are melee, robots that use technology, etc. Dragons, there's a gigantic dragon, a massive dragon, and a small dragon. You like demons? There's a greater demon and a lesser demon. Oh, you like uh, zombies? We got zombies. We got wolves. We got werewolves. We got vampires. We got bandits. We got orcs. We got goblins. We got all sorts of stuff. Gelatinous cubes. Um, we even have a creeper in there. You know, it's based off the creeper in Minecraft. So you don't want to be a melee when he dies or he explodes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's all fully illustrated. I've got all the rights to all the, the pictures. And the Led Lord Dreadmore's gauntlet is awesome. So I'm hoping to have that. I'm going to be ordering my test copy of that within the next day or so. It'll take two weeks to get here. I can see how it prints out. And then if I have any, you know, things to fix on it, then I'll be fixing it and ordering another test copy. So um, having it done here in the middle of November gives me plenty of time, at least two test copy orders before I can uh, get it for sale at the end of the year. So I'm very excited about that. And that will be such a breeze when you want to play solo or with a friend and you just want to throw some enemies on the table. Grab zombies or whatever you have and throw them on the table. The whole purpose of the bestiary was to try to find models, commonly owned models that people will have. And they could just throw them on the tabletop and here's the rules for them. You don't have to create characters for them or anything like that. So I'm very, very excited about that. And then after that, my next plans are to make RPG-style narrative module missions that are different every time you play it. And, oh man, I've been salivating at that. I've been, I've actually been finding myself going, you know what, maybe, it's kind of like being on a diet and you're cheating. I'm like, you know what, I really shouldn't be working on this RPG module, but maybe I'll just write a couple paragraphs. And then I go, no, gotta have some self-control here, Pimpcron. You gotta finish the bestiary and the arena mode first, which, I mean, it's all finished, but I've just had to, right now I'm in the minor formatting and changing picture sizes and all sorts of stuff. So we will probably be finishing that by the end of the day or maybe tomorrow and then making my order. I am so very excited and I am so, so, this is a, you guys don't realize this is a dream come true for me. We have so many people joining Brutality and so many people joining the group every single day on Facebook. And so many people playing the game and posting bat reps and their war bands. And this has been my lifelong dream. All those years that I made games and I had my friends play on board games, card games, all that. I made my own RPGs. I made my own war games before I was ever into Warhammer. I've done this my whole life and I only wanted people to play my game. And now I have people playing my game. I have some real fans out there. They're very enthusiastic about it. And I am just beyond myself. I mean, I know 2020 has been a pretty shitty year. I get that. But for me personally, this brutality thing has been one of the highlights of my entire life. And that sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I 100% am not. So I have rambled on long enough. Um, thank you so much to GameMat.eu for supporting our show. And thank you so much to all my Patreon patrons. Uh, you know how sexy you are. And, you know, I also just a special shout out, a special shout out to Sable Army Transport because he is sending us so much. I believe we're getting three Army Transports for the charity auction at Shorehammer this year. And that is freaking nuts, dude. That is that is so generous. And I'm I'm very, very excited. I know our attendees will be very excited. And if anybody has any questions about if Shorehammer's coming, if it's still happening, it's in three weeks from now in Ocean City, Maryland. 
and it is definitely happening. The only way it will not happen is if they absolutely ban all mass gatherings. Now, this year, of course, our numbers are down and all that. So we're not, number one, we're never the same attendance rate as like Nova or LVO. That's not even, we're not even a fraction of that. We're a small, homegrown, you know, casual convention. But we have extremely stringent and thorough safety guidelines as far as temperature checks. And you get a little purity seal to prove that you've passed our temperature check each morning and blah, blah, blah. Masks are in, in effect and, and whatever. We have, uh, I've consulted with, a, you know, medical professionals and all that to make sure that all of our regulations are 100% safe and will be effective. And we even have a contingency plan with the hotel. The hotel has like six different, uh, usually we use the two big ballrooms. But they have two other smaller ballrooms as well as several meeting rooms. And if there is a cap set on the number of people that can gather in one spot or one room, then we have access to a total of six different meeting areas. So we can we can break everybody up into legal and safe gathering numbers. And uh, so I'm very, very excited about this. And uh, luckily for us, Maryland has been like the 48th worst state in uh for the whole corona thing so we are like our state has done very very well we are ranked like with the number of cases i should say we are ranked like 48th compared to all the other states have far higher cases of than we do and then even saying that uh worcester county which is the county that ocean city is in that has one of the least amount of cases in maryland and maryland is one of the least amount of cases in the u.s so we are very very this is a very safe area to go to. Enough rambling. I know you want to hear Alan's interview, and I know you want to hear what I have to say about uh, Death Watch Dice and Space Wolf Dice, so I'm going to stop rambling, and you're welcome. Want that, or want that not? Hello, one and all. It is time for Want That or Want That Not with the Pimp Crown, and this week we're covering not one, but two different things. We're covering the Death Watch dice set and the Space Wolves dice set that are out now. So it is your typical fodder for dice from Games Workshop. They are 20 dice for $35, which is a premium price for it. But having said that, you know how I love to bitch and complain about the Sylvanith dice, how they had weird symbols and I didn't like it. Uh, how I talked about the Asiarch Bone Reaper dice that had, like, different finger gestures of, like, you know, two fingers up, three fingers up instead of pips. Um, there's been many, many others that are like that, that are just wonky, they're hard to read, I don't like them, it's just a pain. Well, with the Death Watch dice, they either got lazy, or they got smart. I don't know which one that is, but they are much, much better. So these Death Watch dice are like a... Can't really say they're a black color, they're more of like a really dark gray. They're dark gray with white pips. Guess what? The pips are pips. The two, the three, the four, the five, they're all just white pips. Extremely easy to read with my ancient eyes. And there's a giant white skull for the one, and there's a giant Death Watch symbol for the six. Guess what, G Games Workshop? This is dice done correctly. Because far too often we have to deal with trying to cipher what this dice results are with your different symbols and your different pictures. So for no other reason, 
20 dice for $35 is obviously a, a premium price, a higher price than you would normally pay for things. But if you want these custom Death Watch dice and you play Death Watch, I could 100% see you buy these things. They are not quite as interesting, maybe, as the Necron dice or interesting as the Lumineth Realm Lords dice with those, those barrel dice. But they are clean, they are simple, they are concise, they are to the point. Pips are pips, Skull is a 1, Logo's a 6. 100%. If I played Death Watch, I would buy these dice. They're nice, regular, square, cube dice, and there's nothing crazy to say about them at all. But what I like is that they're very, very high contrast. The almost black background with the white pips make it awesome to read. And my vision is not the best sometimes, so uh, and I think it's only getting worse as I get older. So 100% that is a want that from the Pimpcron. Now we move into the Space Wolf dice set. So it's the same price, same number of dice, all that nonsense. <sighs> they're pushing me, is what they're doing. You're pushing me, Games Workshop. The Space Wolf dice are like that dark blue-gray that you've come to love for Space Wolves, and the relief color, the inset color, I guess you'd say, for the pips of the symbols, are a bright gold. So far, so good. But where they get a little bit hairy compared to, let's say, the nice, simple, clean Death Watch dice, if not, maybe some would say a little boring Death Watch dice, they have regular gold pips, two, three, four, five. They have a slightly stylized skull for the one, and they have the Space Wolf wolf head for the six. All of that's totally fine. It's high visibility and all that. The only slight thing that irritates me about these dice is that they all have a ring of like a symbolic, it's it's like a fancy ring, almost like a rune around each one of them. Now, it does not detract from the pips. It does not detract from the skull or the logo. So all in all, I would also say that I want these dice as well because they are high contrast. They're pretty easy to read, although there's more busyness on the dice than the Death Watch dice. And everything, I mean, the it's a wolf head or it's a skull. It's very discernible which one is which. So all in all, I would say the Death Watch and the Space Wolf dice are both definitely worth getting. I would just say that I am a bigger fan of the Death Watch dice because they're higher contrast and there's not the frilly runic stuff around the edges, which slightly bothers me. Now, if that doesn't bother you, then you're welcome to them, and I hope you buy them. But uh, they are both very thematic. They've got the nice symbols. They're well-made. They're not weird. They're not goofy. They don't have that overlay like the uh, Nurgle dice did. Remember when 8th edition first came out? Now, I like the Nurgle dice, don't get me wrong. But it was like an insert piece of one color and then an external shell of another color. And uh, it's just regular old milled dice, which I gotta tell you, I'm excited that they're going back to the old-fashioned milled dice. I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than that. I'm happy they have come to their senses, or they just got lazy. Because obviously, the milled dice are way easier to make than all these weird special, you know, strange barrel dice and all that, so... Anyway, those are two want-thats for me, but with the Space Wolves busyness on each side, it's just, man, 5% less want-that. But the uh, Death Watch ones, they're, they're sexy. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron.
So today I am super, super excited to be interviewing Alan Merritt, which is uh, one of, well, what weren't you at Games Workshop? You sound like you had a million hats at Games Workshop. So can you just explain a little bit uh, the whole the whole panel of things that you did for Games Workshop? Right, okay. Well, that might take quite a long time, so I'll be, I'll be brief as possible. Um, when I, I joined, it was, um, it, I was a caster, uh, pouring molten white metal. In those days, it was lead into rubber molds and stripping the shiny castings out of the out of the mold. Um, but uh, and that was Citadel Miniatures um, in 1980, which was co-owned by the founders of Games Workshop and a chap called Brian Ansell. Um, whose name, no doubt, most of you all know. Um, Matt Business was um, founded by Steve and Ian because they had the license to make uh, Roll Parther miniatures in the UK, uh, mm-hmm. in Europe. At, at that time, Roll Parther were like the most amazing fantasy miniatures the world had ever seen. Bear in mind, in 1980, there were very, very few companies making um, uh, fantasy miniatures. And um, D&D was becoming the biggest thing ever in um, subterranean hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was super. So D&D was super cool. Um, loads and loads and loads of young wargamers in the UK um, and no doubt across the rest of the world were getting really super excited about D&D uh, and they needed miniatures that like they needed miniatures to play it. He didn't really need miniatures. Um, and Roll Parther were um, outstanding quality. They were like world beating, uh, superb designs by a chap called Tom Meyer. Stephen Inn had got the license to make um, make Roll Parther miniatures in the UK, um, but they didn't know how to make miniatures. They didn't they had no idea. They got hold of the, they got sent some uh, rubber molds and they thought, oh, what do we do? He <laughs> <laughs> didn't know how to do this. Um, but they luckily they they were at a war games convention in the UK. American um, gamers might misunderstand what a UK gaming convention is like. Okay. So think of think of your typical uh, US um, gaming convention, and then divide it by about a thousand people, and that's what a UK event <laughs> is like. Really, really tiny little. But anyway, Stephen Ian happened to be selling. D&D or whatever it was they they had um, at a little UK convention and on the table next to them was a chap who was selling metal figures and uh, they struck up a conversation and then founded a company together called Citadel Miniatures because that chap was Brian Ansell. That was that was in the late 70s, 78, sometime like that. Mm. No, I, I was a college dropout <laughs> in Nottingham. <laughs> desperately seeking seeking employment we, we were undergoing a bit of a social uh, troubled times socially in at that period in in the uk's history one of the famous songs chart topping songs of the day was one in ten by a, a band called ub40 ub40 is the official classification of the form that you needed to fill out if you were unemployed and seeking unemployment benefits oh really yeah. that so is UB- funny a UB40, named after the unemployment form, um, had a song called One in Ten. And One in Ten was a reference to the fact that one in ten of the UK working population was unemployed. Wow. So 
wasn't really a good time to get kicked out of, um, out of university, which I was. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking for uh, some form of income. I was living in a strange city on my own. Um, a gaming pal said, well, I can get, I, I work at this company called Citadel and I'm sure they'll give you a job. So I turned up one Monday morning and uh, I got sat in front of this casting machine and that's, and that's how I started with Games Workshop because eventually Games Workshop and Citadel became one business mm-hmm. and Brian Ansell became general manager of Games Workshop and then he bought Games Workshop. He might have been 84, 85, sometime around about then. By that time, so my first job was casting, um, pouring molten white metal, which was mostly lead in those days, into the rubber rubber moulds and stripping the shiny castings out. I was a I was a teenage war gamer, and uh, from a from a humble humble working class um, home, so I never had enough money to buy metal miniatures in any great quantities. So mm. the so, so my days, at, uh, my my first days at Citadel were absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> eye-popping experience because I was just I, I couldn't believe it I was casting these amazing miniatures and I had bought quite a few miniatures in my in my teenage years but in one day I think I cast more miniatures than I'd ever owned you know and it was so, uh-huh. it's super exciting so I, I loved it I was and um, I thought well this is a nice way to make a living <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I got quite good at casting and maintaining the machines and um, then we moved from the one room little tiny factory unit we had into a much bigger facility then the person who was basically bringing me the molds every day left came to me one day and said oh, well I'm not I'm leaving tomorrow by the way I said all right okay here we go <laughs> and then um, five minutes later Brian came into the casting room and said um do you want his job? I said, yes, straight away. Of course I did. Um, and then I, a bit later, I went to Brian's office and I said, um, can you just tell me what he did? <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, so Brian showed me that what my line manager had done before was basically go around, get the orders every day or the trade order, because there's usually only one, uh, go around, see what we had in stock, and basically then go and pull the molds for the things that we didn't have in stock take them to the mould room, ask whoever was casting, i.e. me, to cast those models, then get the model by the packing girl that we had come in twice a week, you know, and then pull the trade order, put it together, send it out to the trade customer, and then the next day, get another order or two. Some days we have more orders, some days we might have three or four orders. Um, But it was quite a small business. Um, We were a tiny little little enterprise. Um, And it built up over time, and then Brian... Um, took a sabbatical and when he came back so Brian left Citadel for about a year nine months to a year something like that I have to say in in that period the sales kind of weren't very good and we weren't releasing any interesting products and I was thinking you know I'm going to pack this in and go back to university and do something interesting with my life because it was getting a bit dull then mm. but then Brian, Brian came back got rehired and the business took off Brian came back sort of energized we had a fantastic kind of um, period of innovation and growth and um, tried all kinds of amazing new things we introduced blister packs into the uk for the first time i think for, for metal miniatures well so what we were to... they before before the clam packs uh, they're in little, little plastic bags with a piece of card folded over and stapled <laughs> that's interesting 
if you, if you go to, there are on the internet, there are like dozens of um, uh, old hammer fans and people who are fans of the old miniatures and collect them. And mm-hmm. you can see photos. Some people have, have got, still got, um, and can still find examples of those original Citadel miniatures in their little plastic bags with the piece of card folded over and stapled shut. But we got, we bought a blister packing machine, uh, which didn't work as, as was, <laughs> as was advertised. Okay. So we had to, um, we had to kind of um, fix it and make it work, which we did. And then we promptly came up with our own design for a blister packing machine. As is, as always, I kind of forget who did what exactly, but I've got a feeling I actually actually designed the, the blister packing machine that we that we bought to replace the one that we bought that didn't work. And we were still using the same design of blister packing machine. That would have been in, in 1981, 82 sort of time. We were still using that same blister packing machine, fundamentally that design in the 2010s. I mean, maybe even more recently than that. When I'd visit the factory, I was amazed. Fundamentally the same technology that I'd kind of invented all those years before. <laughs> so things like that, you get a kick out of. We had terrible trouble in the early years with mold, with mold makers. Um, they were a bit like drummers in rock bands. They didn't seem to last. They didn't seem to last. <laughs> we, get, we, get, we, we get someone who's really good at making molds and they do it for about three months and then they disappear or do something ridiculous and get fired or and brian was a great mold maker brian ansell really really knew how to make a mold in fact he used to make all the master molds because he didn't trust anybody else to make the to 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 handle the delicate master figures which were mostly made out of well in the very early years they were made out of milliput which is a very fragile material and even even with great care when you vulcanize the mold the, the masters would smash up so the first job you had when you opened up that, that a master mold with milliput masters is, is picking out all the bits of shattered milliput from the cavities the, the master mold making was a, was a rare skill because if you if you muck that up you effectively you lost that design permanently so um brian used to do that he was and he was really good at it but one day came to me and said we've lost our mold maker again uh, i know you guys should learn how to make molds it sounds silly doesn't it but i was a very young man and i got it was a very proud moment when brian's after i've made my first mold and cut the channels in the mold for the metal to the into the miniature cavities and he said he said gosh that's very neat alan you're quite good at this aren't you and i was yeah. like am i i don't know <laughs> i just cut the mold but um, clearly I had an aptitude for it. So suddenly I became the mold maker, <laughs> <laughs> which um, which sounds kind of trivial, but actually had some really interesting ramifications later on down the road. I've, I've got a feeling Brian pretty much said, you, you're, you're good at this. You can do this. Um, you should make the master molds. And I was kind of, oh, wow. OK, because I knew how delicate the masters were so he showed me you know how to make a master mold and what the difference between a master mold and a production mold and that immediately put me in a position of needing to have a relationship with the sculptors um, because I was taking their master figures and making the mold and one of the tasks that I had I learned from Brian was that well you have to look at the master and make sure that there's no undercuts and that it will fit in the mold and and all the things you have to bear in mind and Will it cast? Will it mould? So you've got to watch out for this and that and that. And I said, well, if I get a master and it's got an undercut, what do I do? He says, well, we send it back to the designer and get them to fill it in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fine. So uh, you, you necessarily had to have a relationship with the with the sculptors. By the way, the sculptors was really Alan and Michael Perry um, at the time. And they lived 150 miles away from where the factory was. <laughs> I think they might have still been going to school, to be honest. Um so sending it back with, was kind of a, a pain. <laughs> yeah, 
and stick it in the mail. You know? Yeah. Um, but sometimes you kind of went, oh, there's a bit of a, that's a nasty undercut. That'll rip the mould. I better fill that in with some green stuff. <laughs> so I got, I got quite adept at manipulating or bend an arm, you know, and Perry would come say, oh, don't remember the arm being in that position. Oh, it must have moved in the mould, Alan. <laughs> or it, oh, yeah, yeah, it got, it got kind of bent when I went in the mould. Yeah, I meant to mention that, yeah. But, but there's extra creases on it. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, and as the stable of, of um, designers expanded, I, I was, in some cases, probably the only contact with, with the company. But, yeah, that was um, interesting, and I learned an awful lot about miniatures from brian style of miniatures um dynamics and the and the detail and the, the proportions of miniatures and for sure a lot of that was about brian's personal preferences for what a miniature what makes a great tabletop miniature but a lot of the things that he held very dear to his heart about that were, were i think are eternal truths about miniatures I still hold to this day that I can still remember today a lot of the things that Brian helped me to understand about about miniatures and um, this their aesthetic and there's a specific kind of style associated with the Citadel miniature, especially those early early metal miniatures. And I think a lot of um, people sometimes think that was a, a limitation of the sculptor's um, talents, if you like, that they weren't capable of producing really fine sculptures like you might have seen uh-huh. from say a roll path. Uh, Tom Meyer is still an amazing designer and and at the time was producing these most astonishingly elegant, very, very beautifully proportioned, sort of hyper-realistic sculptures in, you know, inch and a half tall. It's it's amazing, really, to Uh think about it. And I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about why was Citadel miniatures different from that style. And and it wasn't because the designers couldn't have designed them that way. Guys like um, the Perrys, very, very talented sculptors very capable of of that kind of level of finesse guys like ali morrison nick bibby who was a, one of our early sculptors kevin adams uh, bob naismith and i must forget trish trish carden all of those those sculptors really helped establish the sort of the brand identity of the citadel miniature they're all very very capable designers very capable sculptors uh-huh. and then when we brought jez goodwin on board you know that just increase that kind of capacity to produce really artful miniatures but that wasn't the house style that wasn't the brand that wasn't what made a great citadel miniature that came from pushing it the bold dynamic some would say slightly exaggerated in some areas of the model you know to accentuate certain things definitely um you you had to you, you had to be able to read read the model when it was sitting on the tabletop and you were you got to imagine that you're not holding up to your eye like this to look at it you're looking at it from three, four feet away. If it's got to have a dynamic and, and a spirit to it and detail that you can read, then you've got to be able to read it from three feet away when it's on a tabletop. So naturally, they'd have more robust frame, bigger hands, head, feet, relative to the scale of the miniature. Very chunky detail, very bold, kind of uh, a little bit of a, I wouldn't say comic book sensibility, but that kind of um, the exaggerated, very, very dynamic Form. Yeah, like um, kind of like a heroic scale, more than strictly a 25 or 28 millimeter. Exactly right, and that's the phrase that's come, that's now associated with, isn't it? Heroic. They're uh-huh. either a heroic scale, and that was very deliberate. The other th- reason was because um, when you make a rubber mold, vulcanize it, it's the the rubber's cured under pressure because the, the the mold is inside a 
steel box and it's being crushed under pressure to to ensure that the rubber seals around the the object that you're making the mold of Mm -hmm. and that pressure the mold is vulcanized under when you take that rubber disc out the thing about rubber is it's you gotta imagine this rubber's been vulcanized like turned into a solid under extreme pressure so when that pressure is released it kind of basically springs out a bit so it's slightly bigger when you take it out of the box well it also springs out into the cavity so imagine the cavity if it was a perfect sphere when you put it in when you get the mold out it's not a perfect sphere anymore it's a, it's a slightly flattened sphere huh. and, and that is why sometimes casting process clementitures can can appear you counteract that the more robust the sculpture the more robust the design is the, le- the less appearance of flattening and shrinkage there is in the in the, in the model so there you go you've learned something new today haven't you yeah actually the casting the whole casting process has always fascinated me um with the spin casters the injection molding or any of that stuff is just really really fascinating well what was brilliant about Brian was that Brian was a very um, an innovator. We would get hold of an idea or a technique and we'd really fully explore it. You know, we'd really interrogate it and see how we could get the best out of that, out of that technique or that process or that technology. Always in our mind was, was efficiency and a desire to get the best quality. So um, we, were, we were always looking at ways of, of reducing the wear that you naturally get on a mould. So we didn't want the model the cavities to rip. We didn't want the models to lose to lose detail over time by, mm-hmm. by the, by, by the mould eroding. And the more able you were to stop the rubber mould breaking down over time, the more efficient that mould is, the more you get out of it. Mm-hmm. So not having undercuts, not having the models in positions which would naturally put stress on the mould, where you don't want all the figures to end up just being ovoid blobs with no surface detail mm-hmm. because no one would want to buy them. So how do you get robustness and that chunky detail and still be able to make moulds that had uh, longevity and kept their integrity so that the models you were casting were, were capturing all that detail and they weren't covered in scars and stuff and brian was quite an um pushed it that a lot and that became kind of my life really in the early period figuring out how to make make the molds work better there was a book brian picked up in america on one trip which had some interesting ideas about uh, jewelry casting and it had some interesting ideas about how you how you cut the run runners on molds and the techniques of white metal casting so we we didn't just adopt that wholesale. We we took that methodology, applied it, and then actually, then thought, how can we make that even better? Like, what else can we do with that? How can we improve that even more? How can we make that sort of even more suitable for the thing we're doing? And we applied that kind of philosophy to just about every single thing we did. Brian wanted, I say, us to produce things that had very high quality because mm-hmm. we could charge more money for it, basically. Absolutely, yeah. That becomes your trademark too. It still is for Games Workshop. Yeah. It's great detail. Absolutely. And and no compromises for that. But also um, understanding how we could um, get more for our buck. Being able to use the molds longer, like you said, is less overhead. You don't have to re- keep recreating those masters or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and well, and, and going back to the masters, I, I said the, the milliput masters would, would smash up in the molds and you'd get this bag of bits at the end of it, which wasn't much use and horrible, burned up and a bit scabby. But, but when we went to Green Stuff, wow, the two-part epoxy, that completely revolutionized the making masters um, because those 
green stuff when it's cured is is still slightly flexible and yeah the master miniatures wouldn't shatter in the mold so you could get them out not quite intact but virtually intact um i thought well, that's really interesting how can we apply that and brian said well we'll just send them back to the designers again just put put that you know fix the bits that have fallen off and um, designers being designers they'll just naturally change little bits of detail on them <laughs> so, so and it won't take them very long we get some we get some extra efficiency out of the design process and we get mm-hmm. new minutes. and um that became a real signature that early year citadel got to admit the designers took it to to sometimes to ridiculous extremes but uh, but the idea of, of taking the master figure and then recycling it with new details and getting like three sometimes four or five versions of that miniature was immensely beneficial to us as a business it gave us loads more designs and actually from a customer's point of view it was absolutely brilliant because there's suddenly a, a, a multiplication of the amount of miniatures that you could you could collect and buy and own in who wanted to have three orcs all exactly the same? And then having done that, then we started to play around with ideas about the about the way that miniatures were sold, moving to the, the, the mixed ranges and uh, the famous kind of um, fantasy tribe series, C, the C series of, of miniatures, which was um, revolutionary at the time. Before we started doing those kind of mixed selections, you would order FF1 fantasy fighter ff2 wizard ff3 etc etc every miniature had its own unique code and you'd order and i remember quite early on we were always out of stock of at least three of the 25 different wizards that we <laughs> that we offered people <laughs> and uh, and of course it's, and as luck would have it it's always one of the one of the ones that we don't have in stock that's on the next trade order we get and i said well what's your point i said well if we just had one code of wizards and then so just all the wizards. I could just send ten of any of the wizards we've got. I can mix them all together in a big bucket. <laughs> so, oh. so that's how that's how we came about the idea of, of doing those mixed packs because it was like it was a way of saying, well, that'll make our order pulling and the and the supply and the just so much more efficient, and we'll never be out of stock. When did they come about the idea of starting to do like um, Warhammer Fantasy Battles or the big units of stuff when they start transitioning away from the RPG models and more towards their own games? Well, we were all war gamers. So Brian was a must have been a war. Yeah, Brian was a war gamer. I was a war gamer. Everybody that worked at the company virtually or most of the people in the world of historical wargaming, um, collecting armies of models. And, and when I say, oh, because I mean, most of the people we knew and, and interacted with were people in the UK, British people. Overseas was a foreign place that we sent boxes to. And sometimes we got money from, <laughs> it was a, a mysterious other other world, especially America was a, a fantasy world. You know, it's like it didn't, Walt Disney lived there. Or it was like, it was a long way away. <laughs> so we were all wargamers and we understood the concept of collecting armies of miniatures and playing big battles with them. That wasn't, that, it wasn't, that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the thing. That wasn't the innovation. In a way, it was, um, it was something that was just percolating in Brian's head, I think, for a while. And he, he, I do remember a conversation with him, which must have been in 81, sometime 82. Uh, no, it must have been in 81. In that year, Brian said to me, he was like, how's it going? Alex? I was in the process of filling a tea chest. A tea chest is a, a rather large plywood box that tea would have been um, transported in. Oh, okay. Quite a big box. And I was in the process of filling one of these with miniatures in little bags, writing the names on it for uh, a French company who used to order once every two months, this massive order. 
and it would take days to assemble this order. Uh, makes you wonder what people do with all these miniatures, isn't it? <laughs> As well, play D and D with them. Yeah, but you can't play D and D with all of them, can you? We have people buy so many; they can't possibly just be playing D and D with. Them. They must be just sticking them under their bed. <laughs> um, and um, that—that's a phrase that became popularised in later years. Is lead under the bed? Um, the idea that. <laughs> And, and we still do. I mean, how many unpainted miniatures do you own, Scott? Oh, plenty. <laughs> yeah, we, we all do. You know, that's, that's what we do, isn't it? Buying them is part of the fun. But how many blinking wizards do you need? Um, and uh, obviously, it, it's something in him was thinking about it. And then one day, he just said, "Oh, I've got the. I know these guys. They're going to. They're going to write this some um, war game, this battle game, fancy battle game. That's that's really how it came about. So uh, I think it was an idea, Brian Ansell obviously had percolating around in his head and, and it kind of became a very effective marketing tool. I know some people will hate me saying it, but the idea that the game was a fantastic engine for selling miniatures, but it was originally, it wasn't really conceived in that way. It was really um, almost like the other way around of, well, if people had something else to do with their miniatures, then maybe they would get more fun out of them and, if they got more fun, more value out of the miniatures they've got, they might then feel quite happy about buying some more. And Brian knew Rick Priestley and Richard Halliwell. I don't quite know exactly how Brian knew those guys, but they had a reputation because they had already co-written a game called Reaper, which is one of the forerunners of the Warhammer fancy battles in, in terms of it was the same authors. So um, Brian knew those guys and uh, no doubt he sent them a very, very long detailed brief about what he wanted. And they... <laughs> he knew what he wanted, huh? <laughs> oh yes, he always did. And uh, Warhammer was born, which was quite fun. So that would have coincided with us moving. We moved to a place called Eastwood, which is just north of Nottingham. We moved, we moved to Eastwood, a nice big warehouse. And uh, I, I was given the official title of factory manager. Yeah, we, we'd expanded quite rapidly then. I think when we when I first started at the Citadel workshop in, in, I think there might have been sort of five other employees. I think when we moved to Eastwood, we were definitely into the sort of 40s or 50s. We were quite getting quite big then. And we actually had a design studio and it was in the first floor of the building for about a week and then brian decided that he didn't want the design studio in the same building as the salesman oh really (laughs) he thought that the salesman would actually um impose undue pressures upon the designers (laughs) who at the time were the what you meant the the writers artists and paste up you know people did the paste up the production people that there were four people he didn't want them to be interfered with by the sales staff so he thought oh no I'll set them up in an office in the centre of town, which would be nice for them, um, and it will it will keep them away from the pressures of the sales office. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a little studio in the centre of town, and that was um, John Blanche, Tony Ackland, Rick Priestley, and we had someone who was doing the production, and there may have been somebody else. Um, but it didn't include any figure designers because the figure designers still all lived and worked from home. Um, they had nothing to do with the studio. How much um, corroboration between the model designers and the studio was there? Did the studio go, hey, we want, you know, this knight on horse, we want this wizard, we want that? Or how did that work exactly? There was zero contact between them. Okay. Uh, 
we, we, we had plans to make miniatures. Basically, the plans to make miniatures started where, it, back in the very, very early years, Brian would tell the miniatures designers what to make. And he'd say, oh, I need you to make me some of these. And, um, oh, here's a drawing. I've got John Blanche to do some drawings. And uh, they would make them and send them in, and then I would make moulds of them. Um, and then over time, that relationship of talking to the designers devolved from Brian to me because Brian was too busy doing he was doing serious important manager general manager things so uh-huh. I sometimes Brian would talk to me and say you should get so and such design the name you should get x to make y okay Brian I'll go and talk to them then yes but don't make them too big or don't do this with them or make sure they don't do this <laughs> and he'd never remember what he'd asked for or what provisions he put on it so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go away and i'd say can you make me some of these and by the way don't make them too big and don't do that with them and they would go yeah but i don't want to do that i want to do this and say all right then go on and make those then instead and it was quite, <laughs> quite an organic fluid process so i would go oh i wonder if um what do you fancy having a crack at a goblin depending on their enthusiasm that became you know a thing because so you went oh great now you can make me loads of those and i kind of been sensitive to what their particular interests, enthusiasms, skills were, and then trying to think of ways of getting more out of that. Very, very early on, it was very apparent that Kevin Adams had a had an absolute um, uh, affinity with with goblins and anything goblin like. And so, so, so Kevin became our go to guy for for goblins, and he loved it. And it was just like goblins and orcs and trolls and anything like mm-hmm. that were perfect for for Kev. Jez Goodwin sit down in my little office. He would say, you know, you asked me to make those beast men. I've come up with all these ideas. And he would basically produce like, like not only some amazing miniatures, but also like, like the whole background and designs for the shields and banners and the history of the characters and how they fitted into the world and everything. So it wow. was kind of like, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in that instance, that, that was very much just, well, just pour that straight into the, the publications at, at the time that. So Bob was Bob Naismith, it's like that. Bob would do have a go at literally have a go at anything. So Bob was the chap that we would I would go to for any interesting new thing that I didn't have any track record with the other designers, which automatically put Bob at the forefront of all of our um, uh, embryonic plastic design tech work. Um, you know all the stuff that we did with injection moulding, virtually any designs we needed at that early stage, you know, Bob was like the go-to chap because, like I say, he was just so flexible and then he could turn his hand to just about any kind of miniature or model. Or whatever. But, uh-huh. Yeah, that process was part of the factory. We, we Making miniatures was an industrial process. And as a factory manager, um, the miniatures designers have a relationship with me and that was their, that was their port into the, into the factory, but they weren't part of the studio. So in the end, I just ended up being at the studio all the time, basically doing production management. Well, it's quite like a lot of my career at Games Workshop. I just kind of ended up sort of being in that place, doing that thing. So I, I, I ended up being based at the studio, effectively managing the studio, sorting out all the production and getting to know and work with guys like John Blanche and Rick and Jervis Johnson joined the studio then. Uh, that was a really fun period. But because I actually was the man who dealt with the miniatures designers, they sort of came with me. <laughs> so huh. so I, I was still the person that was having the dialogue and conversation with them, 
with the figure designers within a very short space of time, a matter of months. We set up a workspace for them. So they started coming into the into the studio and had a, a place there. So suddenly we had a designers physically on site and I suppose where I was and where that was the process. Um, and I still managed them and looked after their, their needs and interests, if you like. In other words, I used to have to go and have this nasty with them. You know, there's a bit of an undercut here. Yeah, can you fill it in? <laughs> I think it will. I think it will mould. Well, yeah, you might think it will mould, but it won't. <laughs> so I was, I was not, I was not necessarily. I was the the bearer of bad news mostly. But um, no, I tried to be. I tried to, and they were. It was good. It was good. It was. I think when we brought them all together in the design studio in Nottingham. I think that was probably the first time where any business had brought that many talent, like really super talented sculptors together in one place. And they really fed off each other and the, the standard and the standard and the level of skill and design, if you like, just, just, just exploded. It just became a fantastically exciting part of the business um, because it was every day it was like, wow, look at what we're doing. And, and the, you know, the miniatures were, were amazing. 